Hello, my name is Hampus Jacobson, and I'm a climate investor. And that basically creates my first question. What do you mean by it? Yeah, good question. So I invest in companies that I believe that can uh, reduce, reverse, and mitigate uh, climate change. So the heating of the globe that sort of creates anything from extreme weather to famine to water level rising. And that's sort of the thing I worry about. And that's the companies I invest in are companies that can exponentially change that. So not companies that you can just take for $1, you can add one more thing, but a system that grows in and by itself if you successfully do it. Because that, I feel, is what we need. Uh, so create an ecosystem for the ecosystem. And I think not only creating ecosystems for ecosystems, but also there are a lot of technologies that are very exponential. If you build a, a windmill and, and a, a solar farms or anything, it is very much like a dollar for a dollar. Uh, like it, it works, but I think that with software you can really create completely new things. So anything from like a, you can create like a new species of a plant, and then from the, the, that plant can grow in different environments, which would just open up new opportunities. So as an investor, how do you choose which company to invest in, so that you could both create profit for yourself and for the ecosystem? I think that the thing is there are multiple aspects of that question. I think that at the end of the day, I think that investing is very much about the team. Like if you have a team that really think that they can, like, that I really believe can change the world and do something really big, I think this is the first thing and the thing I'm mainly going to look at. And I think that the tricky thing with that recommendation is that most people think that they are that person. So it's, it doesn't help me to get people to contact me because then everybody's, oh, I'm that person. But the thing is that there are certain markets which I think are that, first of all, have the potential to change things, but also that there are certain markets that are essentially non-linear markets. And what I mean by that, there are certain things where Um, you're going to be in a world where you need to change how you create energy on the planet. That's not something that you can do on your own. That's not something if you're like a 28-year-old brilliant person, you can't just say, oh, I'll just contact the biggest energy company and like this, or I'll raise money and build nuclear power plants. That's a completely different world. But I think that there are certain systems where you actually can, where you can create something where it's like, this is a system which is kind of a non-linear and also like, it's not a world where you're going to be pushing a rope, where you're going to like asking someone else to act, but it's a world where you can move the things forward. So one example is like, a simple example is like plant-based meat. So you can, oh, we need this amazing like uh, plant-based burgers. And then suddenly a lot of people say, oh, like I can become a vegetarian. I'm happy to move to this because now I have something I can put on the barbecue or something. That is something where you don't need regulators. You, do, you don't need mass amounts of money. You can actually start doing it. And the same thing you have in software. You can do, for example, carbon accounting. So you can look at supply chains and figure out like where are we actually spending carbon with trucks being half-loaded or things being moving around unnecessarily or just like being moved, but that, that's where carbon goes. That's not something where you need mass amounts of money or you need like, like a license to do it. It's something that you actually just can't start doing. So I think for me, it's like I'm looking for these extreme people who have extreme ideas that work in markets that I think that you that actually are movable markets and not something where like it's, it's like it's honestly it's like a regulated problem. And then thirdly, I think these problems have to be something that actually moves the meter on climate change. So if we're saying, oh, I've made this amazing company that sort of plastic straws move the paper straws. That's great. Like we have these papers. The thing is, plastic straws, if you compare that to the rest of the parts in climate change, it's nothing. It's nothing. And I think that's one of the things I'm so worried about as well. So, so one important thing is like we often find these things where we get this picture of a turtle with or a tortoise, sorry with like a plastic straw in its nose. And suddenly we say, we got to get rid of this plastic straw. But nobody pauses and says, oh, let's think about like how bad are plastic straws. I think is plastic straws are not good, but there are much worse things happening. And I think that then we don't do the, for some strange reason, we don't look at the bad things. So it is as if you're a class of kids at school and there are a bunch of kids that are running around with guns 
there are a bunch of kids that are bullying other kids and really destroying their lives. And then there's one kid who's got a cap wearing inside. And if the teacher now says, like, you with a cap, take it off. We got to regulate against caps. It's like, well, the bullies, like, you're going to leave them alone. And the kids with guns, you're going to leave them alone. And then all the attention is in classes. You can't wear a cap inside. It feels like, I'm sorry, is that what we should, like, you know, talk about? I think that's the thing that sort of worries me, is that we're going after these symbols that essentially are easy things to talk about or easy things to measure instead of going after the things that are really, really dangerous. And like, if you take the analogy with bullying, the thing is there's so many teachers who turn a blind eye to bullying because they're also afraid of the bully. Or it's a very comp- they don't really know who did what. And I think that's about creating a culture that you don't, like, you should help other people to excel. And if somebody is bullying you, like, of course, that's, that's a horrible thing. But the thing is, the bully is probably a very, very sad person that also needs help. So I think that we can turn the victim into the victim, and we can turn the bully into the enemy, and we can turn the teacher to fix it to a hero. We've got to figure out that there's not clear-cut role. There's no hero, there's no victim, there's no... And there's no e- exactly. It's a thing where you got to work with it. It's a slow system. The problem with slow systems is they're boring to talk about. They don't make news articles. It's like something we can't measure really well. But those are the things we need to look at. We shouldn't sort of go ban plastic straws because there's this horrible picture of a tortoise with a, a straw in its nose. We should also, of course, look at those tortoises, but that's not the main thing we can do. I know that you had a few startups of your own in your life. I googled and I found an interview where you said that you had created your first startup basically to hang out with your friends. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, what happened was essentially our first startup was started that we were a group of friends that were building a lot of stuff together and like uh, just as fun. And what happened was that a group of us got the possibility to build an arts exhibition for somebody. Another, another two people got the possibility to kind of work with software and, and, and got paid for that. And two other people, they were, got the opportunity to make um, special effects for movies. And what happened was that we knew each other really well. And we, we just felt that it was fun to kind of be in the same room and work. I mean, we weren't working with the same things. So we just said, let's start a company and then we can just be in the same room and hang out. And, I mean, we're not really working on the same projects, but like we like hanging out. So we started that thing and that transformed from this kind of almost like dorm room thing to kind of being a company over like a year. But it was a very kind of natural and slow process of just hanging out and having fun and doing things which we really enjoyed doing we felt that we were good at and that we felt that other people enjoyed and in some cases other people enjoyed so much they wanted to pay for it but the thing is we did i think that we did 50 different things that first year and i'm not saying like we were pivoting i'm not saying we were like business model canvassing i'm not saying like we were doing any of this like systems people are talking about we were just playing around and then one day like one of the things got more and more attention and forcefully, sadly, we had to quit the other thing. It was as if we're like new parents with a newborn child who have lots of entertainment, like we play chess, we go swimming, we go jogging. And then the problem that the newborn child takes more and more and more time. And then suddenly we realized that we actually enjoyed hanging out with this child a lot more. And we just didn't have time for chess playing or watching documentaries or go jogging anymore. So it was not that we kind of designed it, that we were going to get pregnant and get this child. It was more like the child was one of the 20 things we did. And that was the thing that just took more and more attention and that turned into a company. What I actually wanted to ask is this. You have had several startups and they have been something different from what you're doing now. Do you happen to remember what was the moment when you turned into investing in sustainability? Yes and no. So the thing is, I would say that thing is, I would say in the rearview mirror, you can always look back and try to define the moment when it happened. And I think at the end of the day, I think that it's not really true. I think it's not, I don't think people wake up one day and realize that they're, everything changed. 
but I think for me, it was a gradual process that sort of turned into a turning moment, which was, I, I've been an investor for seven years. I've built a lot of companies before that. And um, I, have the last seven years, I mainly, I've sort of gone from investing in people I'm really fascinated about, to topics I'm really fascinated about, to things that I really want to be built. And then slowly the thing with those things is like I work with anything from mental health, chronic illness, pain reduction, communication, uh, EQ, EQ training for children, like many things that I thought was just, I like them, I like the people, I like the topic. But then what started happening last year is that I started more and more of my time started, I just started reading more and more about climate and not saying like reading as in like reading long fiction books and IPCC reports, but it's just like news flash everywhere, everything I, I like for all of us, right? And what happened was like I started spending one hour a week, five hours a week, 10 hours a week. And suddenly one day this spring, I started feeling that this is just such a massive distraction. I, I hate distractions, whether it's the computer game or like sugar or news. I just hate it. I actually personally avoid reading the news because I think it distracts me a lot and I can't do anything about it. But then I just one day I felt that I created so much worry that I had to just full stop quit and not read anything more about climate. And then suddenly when I was thinking about it, I felt, or I make it my full-time job to read and learn anything about climate. I think that sort of just became such a, an absurd thinking. Why would I turn away from the thing I'm actually worst worried about instead of like double-clicking and going full into that thing I most worry about? And I could have taken the other route. I think I've taken the other route on other things. When people say poisoned water, child poverty, inequality, many of these things I've just said, I just do climate change right now. I think your startup idea is amazing. I think it's going to help many things, but I'm not your investor because I only have time uh, for climate change right now. But I know investors that love the topics you do, and I'm happy to introduce you to them. But the thing is, I mean, I'm not a contact bank. I can't spend my time with that. So many people, I just say, sorry, I do climate change. That's what I focus on. But the thing is, I think that what I'm happy about, that it helped me filter and focus my time. But it's not, I would say, it's not that I've changed. It's more like, I just, like, I'm a machine. My focus is my only currency. I'm just trying to spend my currency on the things that I find most important, which means I just have no focus left for other things. And probably my last question for this interview. What are your feelings about Slash 2019? Yeah, I am speaking later today about carbon removal. I have massive amounts of meetings. I think that Slush is such a magical thing because everybody gathers. And I think what I really love about Slush is because it's created by students, then it's constantly on the verge what's acceptable and constantly makes people slightly uncomfortable. You're inside in this massive kind of discotheque filled with gardens and crazy people. And I think that puts people in this environment of anything's possible. So I think that's really what I love about Slush. It's like when you go to masquerade party, then suddenly all of these new things happen because everybody's already crazy. So I think it's such a big difference if you go to a big trade conference where everybody's dressed up in suit and stiff and it's, in the, it's really boring. And then you kind of strict to the, like you Generally, I think most people spend massive amounts of energy trying to be normal. I think that is a very unnecessary thing to spend because most people are not interested in other people that are normal. We want to see other real people. So if we stop spending energy on being normal, but spending energy on being ourselves, we actually can express ourselves and be who we are. And that's going to save us energy, but also make us more interesting and make us more open-minded to other things. And I think what's lovely about Slush is when you're in a crazy environment, people just realize I can just be myself. As I can see, you're already in the energy flow that will keep the audience engaged. So good luck with your presentation. I'm always in this energy flow. Will you tell me the secret? Good sleep. All right. Thank you very much. We have a few more startups and speakers today for the second day of Slush. It's a great, amazing event. Quoting my sound producer, it's going to be cool and awesome, cool and awesome. So, hello, Ekaterina. Could you please tell our listeners a few things about yourself before we 
Uh, hi, so my name is, uh, as Marina mentioned, my name is Ekaterina, but everyone calls me Kate. Uh, I, live in, I live in Helsinki for the past 10 years, starting here, currently working for Keshop. I don't really have much hobbies now, I have to admit, because I'm studying and working at the same time. So my only hobby is to do my homework, apparently, nowadays. And this is what I was doing this morning as well. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I guess that the moment my sound producer is giving you a um, sympathetic look because someone has to graduate at some point. At some point. Okay. Right. What's your position within the company and what is the company about? Uh, I'm a marketing director there and uh, the, mar- the company is uh, providing cashback solutions for consumers. So I started working there in July and it was funny how I found this job because I was in Turkey with my parents and I decided that I might feel a bit bored nowadays, should I try some new challenge? And then I was just scrolling the job ads and found that that great bed and I was like, okay, maybe that sounds a bit weird but interesting. So I just applied for it and... And here I am doing the marketing. Okay, that's one of the stories I will keep in my collection. That's like how to find a job, get bored while holidays. Yes, that was a bit weird because I remember my mother was like, don't you have anything to do? Why do you do that? <laughs> so, yes, and I, I, I really enjoyed Keshoff headquarters in London. So I, I travel there quite often nowadays. And because it's a startup, so there is a lot of potential for growth. So... I, I keep on getting new tasks coming in and out again and do something challenging that I've never done before. And it's, it's interesting to see that I can actually do it. It's very inspiring. So basically, Cash Off is a fintech startup. What's your benefits, again, like classical banks and stuff? What's your specific offer? Yes, we are fintech startup. So I'm not sure if your auditor is familiar with Cashback. Probably, I guess they are. Uh, so uh, our offer is a bit more unique because we are working the cash back goes not from banks but from the retailers. So we are working with big brands like uh, Heineken and uh, basically they offer the up to 50% of cash back to the users or consumers. And this way they also acquire new auditory and new customers and they get information on their customers and their behavior. Okay. I wonder if Heineken is somehow represented at Slush After Party, but probably there will be a perfect promo material and we can start making cash out of it. I guess it's your first Slush. So what are your impressions of day one and what are your expectations of day two? It's actually not my first Slush. I've been working as a volunteer here a couple of years ago, so I'm happy to be back as a startup after all these years. I always feel a little bit like, let's say hyped on Slush because it's such a great atmosphere and so many bright and talented people around you and you can not only you know look for partners or investors you can also just exchange experiences and see how it's working in another organization and it just feels like two days party for me here which is like you know of course valuable but still What is the main uh, goal for you while here? I looking mostly for investors. Are you looking for partners? Are you just looking for clients? What is it? I think we are mostly looking for the partnership because we are now expanding in Europe and Asia. So what what we need is the good partners who can introduce us to the banks. That's our main goal. And of course, just exchanging experiences with other fintech startups. We were attending a Nordea fintech night on Wednesday, for example. It was really valuable because it was a lot of fintech startups presented and we saw the pitching competition, which was also great 
to hear what kind of new solutions people are offering. All right. And when looking for partners, I assume you do, you're doing it via the matchmaking tool. Do you have any tricks? What's the thing, how a potential partner will drag your interest? This is actually a very good and interesting question because uh, I'm working with Dmitry, who is our founder, and there is also Darren, who is a director from London. And they have such a different approaches, as I noticed, because Darren is getting more straight to the point what we can offer to the banks or to investors. And Dmitry is doing it a bit different way. He's more going from the discussion on, like, let's discuss how we can help each other. So it's a bit different approach. And I, I worked more with Darren, so I started a little bit with Darren approach. But then I think that Dmitry approach worked much better after all. And we got a lot of good meetings and Investors are very responsive, and I think just as an advice, we haven't done much mistakes, but it's really good to check the investor or bank profile before going on a meeting or scheduling a meeting. So, so basically, it's about being prepared and uh, offering some kind of cooperation rather than here is money, here is product, kind of how you can help each other. Yes, yes, apparently this scheme worked much better after all, so... Uh, and just to mention, if, for instance, investors or banks are interested, they always ask for extra information. So this this way, like, communication goes much more smoothly instead of just pushing the message, like, hard. It's better to go a bit more from softer side and say, like, let's, let's discuss potential work opportunities. And are you going to watch the pitching competition finals today? We will try, we'll try. We have several meetings overlapping, but... Let's see what we can do. I guess at that point, I can only wish you good luck with your day two at Slush. It was a fun interview. It's always great to hear that. Oh, it's always great to talk to someone from a bit different field than before. We started with sustainability. Now we go to fintech. And I don't remember what else we have today, but it's, it's going to be something again from a bit different field. Thank you very much, Ekaterina, for this interview. And our listeners, of course, don't see it, but Dmitry is taking the control over the situation silently from the corner. So thank you both for being here with us in the media lounge of Slush. And have a great and productive day. Great. Thank you. It was nice talking to you. Thank you. Hello, Will and Paulina. Would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Okay. Hi, my name is Paulina Alanen. I work as a communications and marketing lead at Silo AI. And hi, my name is Ville Hulko. I'm one of the founders of Silo AI. So what is the product of Silo AI? Okay, so Silo is, well, it's actually currently the largest private AI lab in the Nordics, which means that we build and design tailored AI solutions for various types of organizations. So we work with anything ranging from central banks to airlines, automotive, media, all the way to advertising, and basically figure out where AI is needed, build it, and bring it into production. Well, I have a belief that there is only a very narrow range where AI can be used. Would you prove me wrong? Hmm. Yes, I love to prove you wrong, because the way that I actually see it is, it's actually exactly the other way around. The really interesting thing about AI is that it's applicable to almost any kind of a problem or any kind of a data feed that you want to start solving. Because one of the core things of uh, machine learning is the ability for a computer to start understanding data feeds, if you will, that were previously limited to human ears and eyes and ears only. So by using AI, we can actually take pictures and video and turn that into data. We can take speech and text and audio and turn that into data. And basically doing this unlocks the door to using anything that a human worked with before 
and bringing process automation into that. Wow, now I'm scared that the technology will substitute human in the job market. Well, actually, we are building AI for people. So we believe in these human in the loop solutions that we are building. So basically, uh, anything that has uh, machine learning can help people perform better at their jobs. And currently, we have a lot of data in any industry, in any field. And we humans are not naturally good by with treating numeric data, for instance. So why not have a machine to support that and give you insight based on that? So AI is actually helping us humans, like Ville already mentioned, with natural language processing and computer vision. We can have different kinds of interfaces into technology with speech-to-text and computer vision when we can actually, in an easier way, more human-suitable way, work and be more efficient in that. Got that part. Thank you. What are you looking for at Slush? Is it partners or investors or some other kind of cooperation? We have had uh, some media interviews like this one. So we are also looking for uh, like coverage. Then we have had many, uh, let's say, a bit earlier stage discussions. Our clients are typically quite big companies, both abroad in Sweden, in Germany, other countries in Europe, but also in Finland. So, yeah, we are looking for clients and partners. But, yeah, this is all about, you know, meeting new people also from the organizations where we are already working, but meeting some other heads of departments and where we could kind of expand our relationship with that client. And how do you search for the right person to meet? Basically, I think with matchmaking, I used just a few simple filters and then I went through everyone that I saw. So, yeah, I think... My tip would be just to start that as early as possible. So when the matchmaking opens, uh, going through and also in addition to the matchmaking profile, if you have time, checking the LinkedIn profile so that you truly understand. If somebody seems like a good fit for you to meet, then also getting in touch perhaps via LinkedIn already in advance. Keep it short, keep it sweet when you contact people. Don't write your entire business pitch into it and try to explain in three paragraphs what is it that you want to get out of it. Focus on having a profile that's actually interesting and in as few words as possible, try to understand why is it that you want to meet a person. What are feelings about Slush 2019 in general? It's been very exciting. It's my hmm, first time I was here in 2013, so I've been here quite many times. Slush really gives you a good view on everything that's happening in any field of technology over the entire world. So basically any field, be it like the medical field, health tech, like yesterday we heard Mikko Hyppanen from F-Secure talking about AI, something that like comes perhaps from a field that you don't necessarily follow every day, but you get a really good glimpse to everything that's happening during these two days. Because I think the curators of the program, they have done a really good job and that attracts really talented and interesting people to join this event and then you can meet them and, and chat with amazing people who are doing great things. So for me, this is my sixth year in Slush now in a row. And I suppose Slush is also going through a bit of a metamorphosis as well. So, you know, back in the day, in the original days of Slush, it was much more focused on matching startups with investors. You know, investment was the key, which is maybe a little bit of a narrow way to approach the world. But, you know, today, this year, the last year, it's been much, much, much more focused on doing actual business, getting those business connections in and starting those conversations, which is really, really good. Right. And what are your expectations about uh, day two and your plans, maybe? 
Well, I'm actually also volunteering at Slash, so I will be interviewing uh, at the Soaked by Slash studio, VC Yuri Engström, and then uh, founder Zem Joaquin from the Bay Area. So I'm very excited to be doing that in just a half an hour. Yeah, for me, there's still a couple of people um, that I'm hunting down, and we've kind of agreed to meet them still. So I think we'll actually manage to squeeze in a few extra business connections from the last hours here. Right. Thank you very much for this interview, Villa and Paulina. Let's wrap it up this way. Could you both add one more thing to what you've said before? It can be a wisdom, it can be a call to action, whatever. Okay. It's been great chatting with you. I think uh, anyone who is interested in AI should go to our website, silo.ai, and check out the use cases. We try to cut the hype around machine learning and everything um, that is kind of taking a bit too much of a stance in the media in general. So if you're interested in in hearing out what we are actually doing uh, with our clients here in Europe and in Finland, especially also in the Tampere area, so I would highly suggest to go there. Yeah, I gotta say Tampere is a really, really strong city in terms of AI. I don't think a lot of people actually realize what kind of research is being done at Tampere. So if you're interested in hopping on board the AI train, choo-choo, um, first look up Silo AI, but then also go to your local university and figure out what is actually being researched at Tampere today. Thank you very much. And now we're having our last, but definitely not the least, guests for the two days of Slush and our special recording. I should slow down talking and give the voice to him. Hello, Dylan. Thank you for having me. Could you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. My name is Dylan Field. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Figma. Figma is a collaborative design tool. So it's a tool that you can use to create interface design with your entire team. One thing we've seen over the course of the last five, seven years or so, as we've worked on Figma, we started in August 2012, uh, is that design is really changing around the world. And the rise of the designer, I think, is impacting every organization. As our entire economy becomes increasingly digital, it's more important than ever for everything to be well-designed. And it's no longer sufficient just to build something. I think with the rise of the cloud, with the rise of app stores, of no-code, low-code tools, now it's easier than ever to just build But if you don't design something well, you'll lose the competition. It's critical in order for businesses to succeed. And so we're actually seeing the number of designers catch up with that reality. IBM, for example, when we started Figma in 2012, IBM had 72 engineers to every one designer across the company. That's quite a minority. It's a bit of a minority. Five years later, in 2017, IBM had eight engineers to every one designer. On, across the company, on mobile, it was three to one. So it's a radical shift, and we're actually seeing that across many companies, that sort of six-to-one, eight-to-one ratio now. And some people are even trying to get more ambitious and get more design talent in the door. But as you get all these people that are participating in the design process at scale, the problems get more intense. And the applications we've had for all this time that are these single-player offline tools are breaking. Instead, we have to move to collaborative workflows that make it so that you can work with your entire team. So the designers can work with engineers, product managers, marketing, and more. That's what Figma's trying to do. Even as an audio person rather than visual, I cannot but notice and understand the change in importance. Dylan, do you happen to remember how have you come up with the idea? Yeah, absolutely. So I always thought that design tools need to be better. I worked at Flipboard as an intern before I started Figma with my co-founder. And at first, we were looking at all sorts of different tools 
that we're using this technology called WebGL. WebGL is a way to use the GPU in your computer in the browser. As we explored the implications of WebGL, we thought, okay, it's now possible to take any creative tool and put it in the browser. So we looked at a variety of creative tools first before interface design, but eventually got back to interface design. And it was always something that we wanted to do. It was sort of like third on our list of things to explore. When we finally got to the point where we explored it, we realized, oh my gosh, not only is this like the most technically interesting problem we could tackle, it's also this incredibly interesting design challenge as well, because it's, it's very meta, but you're designing a tool for designers. And so to do that, you have to really uh, focus and understand what the designer needs, their key workflows. And if you get it wrong, they will tell you. Uh, and so it's a really interesting, unique product challenge. And then on top of that, we started to realize, like we were talking about just now, that the entire market for design is growing at this exponential pace. And it's becoming, uh, I think in the future, you know, we might see even a one-to-one ratio of designers to developers. So the needs has created the market. So there are more and more young and hungry companies designing their apps. How do you tackle the competition? Basically, what do you do to stay the best? Got it. Well, so we're the definitely the challenger right now. I mean, I think that if you look at the ecosystem, um, you know, there's a few relevant players. One is obviously Adobe, which has had a three-decade monopoly on the creative tool space, and it's time that that's broken up. I think another one is uh, Sketch, which has been an up-and-coming uh, tool that's risen. We're not really seeing Adobe being used very much. I think they kind of lost touch when it comes to what interface designers need. But Sketch and the entire ecosystem around Sketch is very rich and interesting. And the Sketch team is, by the way, brilliant. I, I like them quite a bit, even though they're a competitor. It's normal, I guess. I mean, we're both, I think, look, the, at the end of the day, the most important thing when you think about competition is that the designer has the tools they need. I'm thrilled that finally, I mean, back in 2012, when we started Figma, there were no options. You could use Adobe or you could use Adobe. Now we actually have options. The toolmakers are challenging each other, and that brings out the best for the designer. But going back to the competitive landscape, I think the, the way that we differ from Sketch is that with Sketch, uh, you sort of have to have like a storage tool. You can think of it like a Dropbox or a Box or a Drive or Microsoft. You need to have an asset creation tool, which is probably Sketch. You're doing something with prototyping. Perhaps you're using Envision or Framer or Fuento or Principle or one of the many prototyping tools there are out there. You probably have to have something for developer handoff. So maybe you're using Zeppelin or Avacode. You're using something for version control like Abstract or Plant. There's sort of this big suite of tools you have to sort of duct tape together in this uh, constant dance uh, where things are syncing between different systems. With Figma, in contrast, you can just use a link. Everything works together in Figma. You can go through the entire design lifecycle. You no longer have to worry about versions. And also, you can do things collaboratively with your team. You can share more easily. You can bring people into your work. And you can also work together in the same file at the same time. Thank you. That was very well explained. Probably I'll listen to this episode again if I ever decide to do some visuals myself. Notice Figma has quite a history, but originally, would you consider yourself a startup? Oh, what's the difference for you? What's the difference for you? Well, I think startups are all about growth, right? So right. I think I think mostly, I mean, a startup should still be a business. And so when I think of uh, the phases of a company, I think most companies have a growth phase where they're trying to find product market fit. Once they find it and achieve that, then they're trying to scale it. And then at some point, uh, growth starts to plateau. You're not growing as fast. That's when I think you become more of a classical company without scale. At the biggest stage, I mean, we're growing at a pretty amazing rate right now and it's um it's really incredible to be that having that experience where our team is doubling every year and we're getting to meet amazing people all over the world like yourselves and um i I feel very lucky to be in that phase of the company but i would definitely classify as a startup right now speaking of growth 
Where do you see yourselves in, say, five years? Well, our vision for the company is to make design accessible to everyone. And if we're able to accomplish that vision, I hope that not only will designers be able to use our tool, but also all the people they're bringing into the tool will be able to visually communicate with Figma as well. And I think that takes a lot of different forms. And I think that we have a lot of work ahead of us to make the product simple enough for everyone to use and also to create the networked resources that people can use both in the organizations, but also even if you're not part of an organization, how do you tap into this network of resources so that you don't get started on Figma without having to draw everything from scratch yourself? I think it's the true way to make it so that design is scalable. Do you think that visiting events like Slush is not only about meeting great people, but also help to grow your company and learn new things? Absolutely. Because so many of our users, 81% of our weekly active users, are outside the United States, it's really important for us to be able to connect with audiences across the world uh, and also to understand their unique needs. So, for example, even the night before Slush, I had a great time at our meetup in Helsinki where we were able to connect with local designers and talk with them about the challenges they're facing, which honestly are a bit different than other places. A lot of them are in agencies and they're trying to convince larger enterprise clients, for example, to use Figma. And we need to be able to give the materials that help them make that case. Uh, that's not something that I had heard as much from other companies, but that's something I can now take back to my team and go work on. I think another benefit of Slush for me is just the chance to start to create more of that community in Europe um, and to bring people together. The more that we can do that and create those physical communities, the more that we can also bring that community into the digital space. Uh, that's really the next step for Figma is creating this community online where people can kind of come together and share resources Uh, in a way that's licensed appropriately, such as others can use them and effectively create this digital commons where we can actually start to achieve open source design. I think it's still very early for us. We're in sort of a beta right now. It's very uh, just a few people in it, and the experience is very rough, to be honest. But you're going to see us invest a lot more there in the coming months, and I, I hope you'll see much more in the future there. All right. Good luck with it. How did your stage time at Slush go today, by the way? I know you're one of the speakers. Yeah, so I had a great time on stage with Danny Reimer, who's one of our early backers. And we talked about the different stages a company goes through, uh, sort of similar to what we were just talking about. But we talked about sort of the early days of Figma, of figuring out what we we're going to do, how we got to the point where we had product market fit, how we went from that to getting to the point where we had the right leaders in the company, and how we're setting ourselves up for sale scale now. But also we talked about how it's not always up and to the right, and how there's a lot of blips along the way. So for Figma in particular, I mean, we have had a quite a lengthy path to get here. And we started the company in August 2012. We raised some our seed round from Danny in June 2013. We launched, sorry, we raised our Series A in uh, December 2014. We then launched our closed beta in December 2015. Uh, we launched our GA release in October 2016. Now we're over four years into the company. We didn't start charging until the summer of 2017, which is now five years in. And we didn't, and it was just this last uh, January, we raised our Series C from Sequoia and also introduced our orgs tier. And, you know, it's, um, I think a lot of people see that launch in 2016 and they go, oh, wow, it's only been a few years. It's gone really well. But the truth is the matter is that these tools are hard to build and they take a long time. And uh, building a product people like is not an easy thing. And um, also building a team that can do that because it's never one person. It's always a team behind the product. And anyone who tells you otherwise is lying. And uh, to build that team and make them come together and then also help develop that culture is, is very tough. And so I was talking about some of the challenges along the way with that as well. Um, you talked quite much about communication with clients, understanding their needs. But now you mentioned the team. 
What is unique and cool about Figma team culture? Like, if I appear at your office, would I immediately get a, I don't know, well-designed unicorn? Well, we hope that you do have a sense of uh, sort of design when you come into the office. We do spend a lot of time thinking about how to welcome our guests. But one thing that I hope you feel when you come to the Figma office, and you're both very welcome to visit if you're ever in San Francisco, it'd be wonderful to have you, is when you come into the office, I hope you get a really sense of a warm sense of community and feels very inclusive. That's one of our values is to foster inclusivity and to bring people together like that. Some of our other values, uh, we actually, our three values are the three primary shapes. So foster inclusivity, which I just mentioned, is a circle. We also have a triangle value, which is be bold. That sort of refers to the long history we have of investing in longer-term projects. And that's really what has moved the company forward. And so we want to make sure that we incentivize people and uh, promote projects that will do that for us going forward as well. And finally, our third value is uh, a square, have fun. And um, I think the way that we think about that is if you look back and you haven't had a good time at work, why are we all here in the first place? Uh, we want to make sure that people are able to bring that sense of levity to the office and enjoy being together. So hopefully if you come to Figma, you'll encounter those three things but in the flesh. All right, that sounds engaging. And those actually sound like a well-designed set of rules how to build a successful company. Well, it is for us, but there's lots of different ways to build a company. I'll give some examples of other rules we have. Um, so for example, some of the engineering values we have because the engineering team came and create their own value sets as well, in addition to the company values. And some of the rules and values they promoted, one of them, for example, is craftsmanship, which is really important for a design tool. Not only do we need to make sure that we show a level of detail and care in everything we do while still shipping, but we have to make sure that the service is up, that you know, people all around the world, especially in developing nations, are using our free tier uh, to put money on the table and to, sorry, to put food on the table. Uh, and the, that capital uh, actually helps them quite a bit. If our service goes down, some people might not be able to make a client deadline and actually won't be able to put food on the table for their family. In contrast, Facebook, for example, has a value around move fast and break things. That's not our value at Figma. And, uh, you know, people that are looking for that wouldn't be happy in our culture. Thank you very much, Dylan, for having time for this interview. Thank you so much for having me. This was all that we have managed to record during the two days of the intense slash 2019. Thank you, all of our guests. And I hope that you, my dear listeners, got some interesting conversations to listen to. On behalf of Tribecast team, I wish you a great weekend. Listen to us, send us messages on Twitter, and stay warm and tuned. Mm-hmm.